Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezra. One thing that I failed to sort of remind us about, today we're going to have a baptism. As soon as the baptism's over, I'm going to ask everybody present to come up to the platform. And Pastor Eric and Mr. Johnson, if you could maybe grab a couple men. Let's just take these chairs and set them over there. And we're going to have everybody come up on the platform to get a picture made. And uh, somehow, if we can get those out of the way, I think we'll do better. So um, there's always somebody says, I don't want to be in a picture. Please, it's our 40th. Don't slip out. Stay. I'll try to make it painless as quick as we can. And uh, then we have cake for everybody. Okay? And uh, we got cupcakes for those that want anybody to touch your cake. And for the rest of us, we're going to cut your piece out of the cake. You're supposed to laugh. Okay, okay. Yeah, loosen up a little bit. Okay, all right. Already been a good day. Turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra. Don't preach often out of Ezra. Nehemiah, we tend to preach more out of, but not as often out of Ezra. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us a good morning in our word, in your word, in our message. Help me as I preach today to have your strength and your wisdom. Help me to have your power. Help me to speak simply, but very precisely what you want to be said. Lord, we love you. And today, Father, even this last song, because Jesus, your son, came, we are here. We love you. He is our cornerstone. He is the rock. We are hopeless without him. We thank you for it. We thank you for your word. We thank you for other believers. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells in our heart. We thank you for the home in heaven that prepared for those that love you. And Lord, we thank you that your son's coming again. We thank you, Father, that one day we will sit at your feet. Lord, we love you so much. Now, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. My mom, when I was a child, used to get excited about something once a year. Downtown, they'd have a remnant sale at the, at the cloth store, you know, and I, I said, Mom, what's a remnant sale? She said, you know, all the bolts of material. A lot of times they have that last yard and a half, two yards, and they wrap them up and fold them out, and they're going to sell them for very inexpensive. And you can get some very nice pieces of cloth. A, a little remnant is worth, you know, a lot. And you can make pillows. You can make a little skirt for a girl and all kinds of stuff. And so my mom and, and the neighbors would get together in the car. And boy, they were at that door at 7 o'clock in the morning for the remnant sale. I mean, the remnant's that which is left over. Well, Ezra is talking about the remnant. The remnant is the children of Israel have been naughty for years and generations and kings after kings, first kings, second kings, all that period of time. They were not what they should be, and God carted them off away into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. Seventy years they were there, and now God is going to restore them back after 70 years of spanking them pretty good like that. God's going to bring back some people to the land, and he's going to bring back a faithful little group and we refer to them the remnant. You know, in our society today, we need a remnant. America has departed from its roots. And God is looking for the remnant to stand up and be counted in our day and age. He's looking for a remnant. You know, a remnant doesn't look like when it's laying on a table worth much sometimes. And maybe we feel each and every passing year, decade, that it seems like our remnant's shrinking. 
You look at this election that's coming up, it seems like the Christian vote doesn't nearly like 30 years ago or under President Reagan, where the remnant got behind. Boy, that was a big group. And this year we're wondering, how large is the remnant? And after this, how large is the remnant? And after that, how large is the remnant? And after that, how large is the remnant? And what influence can a remnant of those that love God, love Jesus Christ, believe in the word of God, and believe that right's right, wrong's wrong, and righteousness should be establishment and should be the base of everything we believe, how long can that remnant have an effect? Well, here they're coming back. God's worked a miracle. I want you to see in chapter 1, once you see in verse 1, it starts right there. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's the king they're underneath right now. Nebuchadnezzar's not around. Now we're under Cyrus. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Syria, that he made a proclamation. If you mark your Bible, circle, underline, he stirred up Cyrus's spirit. See, God did a work. They had been there for 70 years. 70 years was done. God said, it's time for you to go home. And God began to stir up. And God began to prepare the atmosphere. And God began to work in the situation. And miracles of miracles, what's going to happen? This king makes a proclamation. Anybody that wants to go back can go back. And I want them to do something that you can't believe a heathen king wants. I want them to build a, a temple to Jehovah. Now, I think in his mind, he's thinking, well, I've heard a lot of good things about Jehovah, and Jehovah's a strong God, and, and he's a wonderful God, and I could use his blessing. If I build him a temple, he'll bless my kingdom. God stirred up his heart to think that. It's amazing how God can turn the heart of a king. God can turn the heart of leaders that seem like they're going this direction and make them do this work. And it's a miracle that God would put that on his heart. You know, God can bring revival in America. It's God's work. Do you know the people for those 70 years, I think they felt a lot like we sort of feel under the yoke and bondage, under the oppression, under the darkness, under the hopelessness. Will we ever see our homeland again? Will there ever be a restoration? Oh, Lord, our hearts. And there are people that we're going to see in here, that are still alive, that were here 72 years or 75 years ago, and they saw the old temple. Boy, they, these guys could ever be built again. And their hearts have been praying, and they've been trying to carry that vision on. God can bring us back if we'll be a faithful remnant. And here God moves on this king's heart in a miraculous way. I don't know always how God's going to move or how God's going to do anything. But what God does, I read a verse in the Bible that when God's hand moves and puts his hand to it, that no one can stop it. There's nothing stopping the hand of God anywhere in this universe. Look at verse 4. What's his proclamation? And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let this man of his place help him with silver. God says, whoever wants to be a part of this. You know, we talk about God moving the heart of a king. An old ungodly king like Cyrus, that's a miracle. But then God turns, listen, God turns to his people and his church, in this case in Israel, and he said, whosoever. Now, I like the whosoever when he talk about being saved, don't you? 
Whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But in this place, we're finding whoever wants to put their hand to it, they may. Do you know, Christians, what we need in God's people is some whosoever's to get the work of God done. Do you know what the children of Israel were guilty of many times? God would restore them to money and houses and and uh, there would be buying and selling and all that kind of thing going on, and they were sort of restored, but they would forget the house of God. They forget to tithe. They were forget to build it. They were forget to serve. And matter of fact, in some of the generations, literally, the house of God fell in such disrepair that at one point, church. Wow. God needs people that will care about his church. Whosoever will can put their hand to it. You know, people over the years, we talk about what has God done for Westside Baptist? What will he do for Westside Baptist? God calls and puts on a man's heart, a woman's heart, to go and do something, to teach a class, to build a building, to give a check to. you. Any part of you talk about building God's work, it's whosoever God touches their heart. And I wonder over the years how many times God has touched a heart and the whosoever said no. But here the king said, whosoever will. Man, you'd think the whole group would just get up and march out of, march out of Persia, wouldn't you? But they don't, not that many. Look at verse 5. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Benjamin and Judah. We find two tribes, particularly the southern tribe, Judah and Benjamin. The chief of that group responded. There was a group that was more spiritually minded, and they stepped forward. The northern tribes are not responding. They're further away from God. They're, they're, they're a backslidden denominations, as it were. They don't care. But I would say these are the ones that are like your independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist believers. They're stepping forward, and they're responding. Judah and Benjamin, these two southern tribes, are stepping forward. And it says, look, if you will, it says, whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord. So God stirred them up to go build. Look at verse 6. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands. Those that couldn't get involved strengthened. How do you strengthen somebody's hands? You give money. You loan them instruments. You say, here's my tools. Here, take my donkey. Drive my car. Use what I have. I've got some assets you can use. So some went. Some sent money. But they all began to lean toward it. Look at the end of verse 6. That was freely, willingly offered. Willingly offered. God never demands. God calls. God will not make you serve him. God will not make you give to him. God will not press you into the ministry. God will not call you and force you into be a missionary. God will not uh, press you into being a Sunday school teacher, but he will call. And so they called, and they was offered freely. Look at chapter 2. As the people began to return, look at verse 2. We find here, and which came with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the leader of this group. You know, it's interesting. In every generation, God is looking for leaders. If you look at these chapters, at the very beginning, this 
verse lists about six or seven men, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Jeshua and all these other like six or seven. They were men like the pastor, the deacon board, the assistant pastor, the trustees. These were the ones that stood up and said, you can count on us. And you know, that's a rare group that steps up and is willing to shoulder the leadership in a generation. And God's looking for leaders in every generation. Can I talk to the men? Would you just look up here this morning? Wake up some of you men. But, okay. God's looking for leaders. God's looking for men that are willing to step out of the crowd. And as it were, I hope I don't do something stupid this morning, but they're going to stand up above the crowd. They're going to say, I'm going to be a leader. I will stand up and be counted, and my name will be there. Uh, Pastor Butts, Patrick Tanglau, Brother Jim Byerly, these are men in our church. They've stood up above the others and willing to let themselves be known and their name put up there, and they're calling people and they're organizing people. Will you be one of those people in the future? As you saw, our church, it rotates, doesn't it? People come and go out of Houston and all the rest. There needs to be leadership. In the rest of this chapter, we find something interesting here. So we have Zerubbabel taking that leadership and Nehemiah. And then the rest of the chapter, ladies, I don't want to dismiss your importance, but it lists all the men. And can I tell you, every generation needs men to lead. You go down and start, 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 start looking at all the different men that are listed here. And it's 50 of these and 40 of these and 60 of these and 2,000 of this group and 100 of this group and 25 of this group. And they listed out the men that were willing in their village, in their little cluster, to stand up and be counted. And the men left their jobs and left their monies that they were making over here uh, in Persia. And they were willing to go back. It was men that started going to church. Men, it's very important that you be faithful with your family and lead the way. Don't send your kids to church. Take them to church. Don't send your kids to do stuff. Go with them. Years ago, I asked a question. Way back when I first moved to Houston, I was teaching a Bible class, and I put out a survey. I had about 30 kids in my Bible class, and I, these are ninth through 12th graders, and I said, how many, secret survey, how many of you have ever gone out on a visit with your dad or your mom to go talk to somebody or win them to Christ or anything like that out of 30 kids? you know what my answer was on my survey? Out of 30 in a Christian school, at a good church like Dr. Hodge's church, two. Two had ever been out with their mom and dad. Dad, we need you to lead the way to win souls, to lead the way to learn, teach your kids how to give, to come to the work days and work together, to see that you're teaching a Sunday school class, to see that you're in church on Sunday morning, to see that you are memorizing your verse. We need men. Ladies, I'm not discounting you. I'm just saying we need men. We need men that will be men in our generation that will stand up and make a difference. We talk about it in politics. We need some men that, and we talk about men leadership. We need to start it in God's house first. We need men that will be men. Stand up and say, we're going to do right. And we're going to be committed to building God's work. Look at verse 68 in chapter 2. And some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, 
offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. Do you notice these were men of significance? The chief fathers were leading the way. This is the grandpas. These are the men of means. These are the men that own businesses. These are the chief of the fathers. The older fathers leading the younger men. You know, older men, you have an opportunity to lead the way by your example and by your, your, your dedication and, and drawing the other young men after you. They freely offer. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 2. And as they got into the land now, then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, and his brethren, and the, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and his brethren. And here's what we want. They builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings and etc. You know what they did? They made sure the worship was healthy. Church is not about the building. Church is not about all the fellowships. Church is not, you know, I'm looking really forward to the, the fall festival. It's, I love the youth activities and, and I like all the stuff that we have. But you know, our church is about Jesus Christ and worshiping him and establishing the altar to him. Amen. So they made sure that they got the, the first thing that they did is they got the foundation laid and they got the altar and they built the altar like God said. And we worship like God says. And they put that altar up. And in the next verse it says, they set it up in its place. In Jesus' place is first place. I thought much about that today. Boy, it's easy to worship our past, easy to worship the people that did all the different things and some of the sweet families and, and even old Pastor Butts, I thank you. You know what? It's about Jesus. We build the altar to him and, and we make sure that our worship is true worship. We come to church to see Jesus. Years and years ago when I was a boy, there was a preacher came, and I remember him talking about a new preacher coming to a church, and they built him a brand new pulpit. By the way, this pulpit right here was built for our 20th anniversary. It was presented to our church and to me to have. And that church did something like that, and they put a plaque right here, verse out of the Bible, Sirs, we would see Jesus. And you know, that's one of the goals I have in every message that I have to make sure that we center it around the Lord Jesus Christ. We wouldn't be anywhere without him. Why build a building? Why build a church if it isn't for our Savior that died in the cross, was buried, and rose again for us? You know, the resurrection of our Savior, he defeated our death. He defeated the penalty and the wages of our sin, and he rose again. And they established the worship on Jesus Christ and him alone as our personal Savior Look at verse 5. At the end of it, and everyone that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord, and they just kept giving, didn't they? You know, your life as a Christian is a lot about what I can do to build God's house, and it's a freewill offering. Can I ask you, what are you giving of your life to the service of God? I'm not talking about your checkbook so much. What are you doing for the Lord as that worship got established? Look at verse 11. The people were so excited. Chapter 3, verse 11. And they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever. And they just praise God. The people sang praises. And today we've sung praises to our Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, it's important to keep the music right. 
the music pointed toward Jesus and not toward the flesh. But they were so excited as they sang. Look at verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes went, wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. And can you see they're singing praise to God and these older, they call them ancient men. Boy, as I get older, I'm getting more towards that category. Right, Brother Pope? That is what gets you in there. He's older than me. Okay, okay. Just a little bit. Okay, there we go. The ancient men, they saw that altar sitting there. They saw the praises going. The church is not built. The building's not quite built yet, but they can, they, they can see it with the eye of faith. Hey, we're back. Jesus is being where God's being lifted up. And the Bible says they sang and everybody was, but these men, they began, and please block your ears. I don't mind. They began, oh, oh, praise God. And they just, I mean, they just broke down and wept. And the Bible says that when they wept, they couldn't tell whether it was joy or whether it was a problem. They were just so absolutely so grateful that God was doing a work in God's midst. And you know, this next generation needs Jesus Christ. God, please restore the foundations, restore the worship, restore the music, restore the preaching of Jesus Christ to this next generation. And everything seems like it's moving the right direction until you get to chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. And when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then there came Zerubbabel and the, uh, they came to Zerubbabel and they said, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. I don't have time to explain this well to you, but they didn't belong with them. If, do you know the word ecumenical? The word ecumenical means all religions joining together saying we all believe in the same God. I've got news for you. We do not believe in the same God as the Muhammad does. We do not believe in the same God that Jehovah's Witnesses believe in because they believe Jesus was just a human being. We do not believe. There's, they, ha, they were not of them, but they tried to pull the old saying, hey, let us join with you. And the word the Bible uses, we want to make affinity. We want, to make, we want to make a league with you. And, we, and, and they were trying to diminish them and suck them in and, and just sort of minimize all this work so they could control this. But the Jews had very clear understanding from God that they were to worship him alone and they weren't to be making any leagues with anybody else. And they turned to this group in this chapter and they said, no, you have no part in it. It's amazing how quick, look at verse 4, after they said that, then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and they troubled them in the building. As soon as they said, no, we will not be part of your ecumenical religious crowd that doesn't believe anything but a generic God. When they said that and said, we believe in Jehovah alone, all of a sudden, they turned on them, and they began to trouble them and weaken their hands. Look at verse 4. They arrived. They hired counselors against them. Doesn't this sound like something going on in Congress and the courts? And they began to hire and work against them and to frustrate their purpose all the days of King Cyrus's life. So they're working on building. And every time they turn around, where's your permit? 
Every time they turned around and said, did you, uh, you carry that lumber from here? Did you have a union representative with you? I mean, anything they could do to slow the work down, they began to fret. And we see that. It's nothing new. It's still going on in our generation uh, that's going on today. Well, this went on. King Cyrus dies. God had moved on this Persian king, but he dies. And a new king, Artaxerxes, takes his place. And things are going along. And boy, that's a crowd. That's an opportunity for this crowd. They say, hey, we're going to write a letter to this new king and say, you're not going to let those troublemakers. And if you look at it, please, in verse 13, verse 11, they send a letter. Verse 12, it says, they are building uh, the rebellious and the bad city, and they've set up walls, verse 13. If this city be builded, the walls set up again, then will they not pay toll, tribute, custom, and so thou shalt damage the, the uh, revenue of the kings. Hey, king, new king, that old king wasn't very smart, but you're smart. And don't you realize that these Jews have always been troublemakers and we need to stop them and we want you to put a stop to the building of this city and particularly this temple, this God of theirs and all the rest is not a good thing. Save a little time. The king bought it. King Artaxerxes says, well, he did a little search and, and all the records and indeed, over the centuries, Israel had been in this battle and Jerusalem had been in this battle and they'd always been sort of a, a, a fly in the ointment. And so he said, tell them to stop right now in the king's authority. In the next few verses in the chapter, we find what happens. They come and they say, nah, 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 nah. we got a writ that says we can bring an army and all the weight of Artaxerxes to stop you. You're stopped. Boy, I didn't mean for our message to go this way, but I was thinking out in California. I'm looking at some of these states, and they're saying, you can't worship God for a year. Only five of you can get together, 10 of you can get together. You can get out in the rain if you want, but make sure you're 50 feet apart. I'm exaggerating. Okay. What would you do? They, wanted, they didn't want, and do you see how they hired the counselors? They were frustrated. And we see this in our own generation. And whether this election goes towards Christian freedom or not, I don't know. One day or another, we're probably going to have some restrictions on our, our worship. Probably coming. What are we going to do? Well, that was a problem for Ezra. I want you to see what they did, please, in um, chapter 6. Let me get to my notes here. Chapter 5. There we go. Then the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah. We don't preach out of them too often either, do we? Okay. Here were two, can I, can I put it in our vernacular? Two strong-minded pastors. Haggai. That's Haggai Butts and Zechariah Hodges. I'd like to think that. Okay. They prophesied, they preached. They said, in the name of the Lord, we need to get this temple built. They stirred up the people. They stirred up Zerubbabel. They said, go ahead. God's behind you. 
God has not said his work should cease. Verse 2. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Jeshua, and they began to build, circle that. Would they begin to build the house of God? And with them, who was helping them build? The preachers, the prophets. So here we find the pastors and the, and the community and the church workers, and they go out and they put themselves literally out there nailing nails and building buildings and getting things together and, and working in the work. Verse 3, that same little group came to them, and the end of the verse says, who commanded you to go on and do this? We had a writ. You were supposed to stop, and you're going on. And who said that you could worship? And who said you could build this building? Verse 5, but the eye of God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease. No one can make us stop worshiping God. We will not be intimidated to stop worshiping God. I don't care what the climate is around us. We love our God. And whether we talk building a building or building his church, I don't care how you talk about building. The eye of God is upon his people, and we will build our church. Our authority comes from God himself. The end of verse, down verse 10, they really got worked up. Who commands you to build this house? Verse 10, we ask their names. Okay, you're going to build? What's your name? You're going to go ahead and build? Your name? Jezon. Okay. You're going to build? What's your name? Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell, I'm going to make sure Xerxes knows about you too. And what's your name? Who? You sure you want me to put this on here? Do you understand what I'm talking about? They didn't just say, oh, here's a little money. They put their name on the line. You know, Christians, there's a time that you have to stand up. Amen. And you put your name on the line for the gospel. And that's what these men did. As we proceed in the story, they go back to the king, and the king says, they didn't listen to you. And boy, at first he was anxious, but they sent a counterproposal. Go back and read in the records and see what Cyrus says. And Cyrus had made a decree. And remember, the Persian law was never to be altered. And that law said, this house will be builded. Not only will it be built, but we're going to take stuff out of the king's treasury to build it. And nothing is to stop it until it's built, that God may honor us. And when Artaxerxes read that, he said, oh, I have made a mistake. And second time, God did a miracle. You might call it the Supreme Court. God did a miracle. It looked like everything was against him. And your name's on this thing. And your name's on this thing. It could have gone the other way, buddy. I mean, you got family and kids and all the rest. I mean, it's your fortune on the line. It's everything that you are. You might get hung. The king could hang you. But God did a miracle. Reminds me of the children... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood up and they would not worship the false god. They got thrown into that furnace that was seven times hotter. And the only people that died were the people that threw them in. And in the midst of that furnace, when the king looked in, he saw not three, he saw four, for Jesus was with them. 
You know, Christians, when we stand up for God and we do what he tells us to do, we build God's church, God's eyes upon it. And God worked a miracle for those people. And at the end of this chapter, it turns so much around that the king says, I want you to go back. And I want you to tell him that this is not to stop until it is built. I want you to expedite it. I want it to be done in full speed. And I want all the monies to come out of it. And anybody else who wants to get up until these values, they, these high limits, they can draw, they can draw and draw lumber. They could draw salt. They could draw anything that they need to make this happen up to these high limits. And no one is to stop them. And if anybody tries, we're to go to their house, tear it down, use the timbers to build a gallows, and hang their whole family. What a turnaround. God took the very people that were trying to destroy them. It reminds me of Haman, doesn't it? And how God turned him and put him on the gallows instead of Mordecai. God was working a miracle. Christians... After this, the next thing that happens is that children come together to worship God. And they, they did a work for God. Look at, and as God did that work, in verse chapter 6, verse 19, the children of Israel kept the, kept the Passover feast. The very first thing they did when they got all this and they won the battle and the house was built, they kept the Passover. We say, okay, what's the big deal about the Passover? It represents Jesus dying on the cross for you and me. Here it is, right in the heart of this chapter, the very thing that we stand for. We stand for Jesus Christ. He is literally deity. He is the Son of God. He died in our place. He was buried. He rose again. He could take the sins of anybody, wash them away, and they turned. And this very thing that symbolizes the coming Passover lamb, Jesus, they worship and they, and they, and they begin to build for him. In the coming chapters, the people willingly give of themselves and, and everything seems to be going forward in a very positive way. But I want you to go to chapter 9. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me. They came to Ezra. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. Everything's going well. God is blessed. Two major miracles. The house is finished. Worship is restored. Commerce is restored. Everything seems to be prospering. But somebody came and they whispered in Ezra's ear, Ezra, do you remember how we got carried away beginning like 70 years ago? Yeah. It's because we wouldn't set, we became just like the people in the land that we were, we were kicked out. We became just like the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And God said we weren't supposed to have anything to do with them. Three things he says you're supposed to. First of all, you're not to marry them. Number two, you're not to make peace with them. And number three, you're not supposed to go after their wealth. Well, our people have not separated themselves. And just like before, we became just like the people we were replacing. It's happening again. God's done all of this. And the world is invading our church. And this is really where my burden and my message is this morning. I'm just going to preach it to you. You can look up the verses. God begins then to deal with this group. And he says to them, Ezra, for all that you've done, it's down the drain unless these people get themselves clean. 
Can I tell you, Christians, what does the word ecclesia mean? It's the Greek word for church. Do you know what it means? The group that's called out from the world. If Westside Baptist Church is going to have a future of any kind, it's going to be happening because we are a called out group. This church can't be like the world. Our music can't be like the world. Our dress can't be like the world. Our goals can't be like the world. We can't have our, our desires on money and filth and all the garbage and all the entertainment of this world. It needs to be after righteousness and mercy and holiness and God. That's how God builds his church. Well, when Ezra heard this, this is what he did. He got on his face and he said, Oh, God. Oh, Lord. Would you please clean up this group? And so that he, he just cried. The people, they were stunned. He called the leadership together and he said, Men, it starts with us. And we need, and he explained to them that they already had begun to marry un-Jewish people. They'd already begun to, to mix in among the people. And they'd lost their affinity. They lost their separateness. They were making affinity. They were they're going together. And he said, we need to get the people to separate. We're mingling, in this case, the Holy Seed the Jewish line. He said, we need to come out. They said, we agree. Oh, the leadership agreed with Ezra. They said, we need to take care of this. So they made a mandatory call. Everybody come to a meeting in three days from all over Israel. If you don't come, your house will be torn down and you will be stoned to death. Well, I'll be there. So the whole congregation gets together, and Ezra says, this is what God says. No mixed marriages with the unsaved. No being like the world. You need to live a separated life. No having your life all for materialism and all the goals and all the, and making your affinity and with the businesses, with the people of this world. You need to keep yourself a separated group. And he said, this is, you've already begun to do it. And the people began to weep. And then you know what God did? He sent a huge bolting rain. I mean, it's a rain and thunder. And the people got afraid. The people said, you know, God is dealing with us, and he's given us a warning. We just spent 70 years, and we said, God did a miracle when he brought this remnant out, and we're headed down the same road. And they said, oh, God, we're so sorry. They began to tremble. They said, here we call ourselves independent, fundamental Baptists, and we're acting like we're unsaved people. And they said, we agree. They said, will you agree to live a separated life? Will you, live a separate? you agree to get your life cleaned up? I'll get my life cleaned up. Do we want God's blessing upon this temple and upon our land? We do. We'll do. We will clean our act up. We will, as men, clean our families up. You promise, you promise. They all promised. As you read the very last chapter, it wasn't as easy as it sounds. For several of the men had already married wives. There was only one way for them to clean up their lives, to separate from the wife. Let's look at the very last verse of Ezra. The very last verse of Ezra. All these had taken strange wives and some of them had wives by whom they had had children. Is this a mess? Do we make a mess of ourselves sometimes? 
God's called us to be a separated people. I want you to realize this happened in just a matter of a few handful of years. They had headed down for generations. God had dealt with them. He called out this remnant to be a pure group. They were glad to be a part of it. They started down the road, and they started right down the same old habits. God's calling a holy people, a righteous people, a separated people to live for him without any questions. And you know, that's the heart of this pastor. We talk about preaching the burden of the heart of the God. My burden for Westside Baptist in the next 40 years, that God will take this remnant, a holy group, a holy seed. In the midst of this, there's a verse that says, we are a small group of grace. We've been saved by God's grace. And it says, God has brought this group as a nail in this. In other words, God just brought them back and boop, and there they are by his grace, hanging on. God has brought Westside Baptist Church and he's nailed us right here in Katy. And by his grace, God wants to have that as a place a posting place for righteousness and his name to be built out from. But God will only do that if he has a holy people. If God will deal with the children of Israel like he did for 70 years, and if he'll clean his people up so strong as he did like in Ezra, do you think he'll skip a church like ours? My call to our group here is a call to holiness. a call to separation. I want you to think about your life, Christian. Are you living like a Christian should? I don't have to list anything. This, this group pretty much knows either I'm living on the righteous path or I've got my foot in the world. What this group did is whispered in Ezra's ear and said, yes, our feet is flat in the world and we need to call to get our feet on the straight and narrow. If we're going to be blessed of God... It's because we keep our eyes on living a holy life. There's no way around it. You may build a work, but you're not going to build God's work. You may build a building, but it won't be God's building. And I end with this sobering note. We didn't build this auditorium. There was a church here before us called Bridgewater Baptist Church that did not do right. And God took that church and set it aside. And he put his remnant in it. He could do that to Bridgewater. He could do that to Westside Baptist Church too. We need to know Christ. We need to set up the foundation of biblical worship. We need to have the right kind of heart and praise and music. And we need to walk a holy walk. Will you commit to that? Not, not generally. Is there something you need to clean up out of your life so God can bless our church? The people say, yes, sir. We want our generation to be blessed. I, I watched this past week we had on a Friday this closing rally for Spirit Week, and I watched, we asked the parents for some donations. Do you know what? Parents love their kids. They donated so much food. We do all that for this next generation when we clean up our life for our God in this next generation.
They need a holy, a holy, a holy church. It's a sobering message, isn't it, for a 40th anniversary? The future lies on a foundation of Christ and his righteousness. That's the foundation. Let's bow our heads, please. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would sober our hearts as fathers, men, moms and dads, young people, that you want to build your generation through this remnant in this city, this generation. Lord, you've called us, you've nailed us this nail in this place called Katy. You've put us right here. And Lord, we're thankful that you saved us, that you've given us a Bible-preaching church. But Lord, help us as individuals and as families to feel that call to righteous living with honest, clean commitment. In Jesus' name.